I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast. This week we're beside the seaside, about half an hour's drive away from the Victorian pier at Bangor and along the rugged coast of North Wales. The Anglesey coast to be precise, beside a lighthouse that is in between the coastline and a small rocky outcrop called Puffin Island. And that bell you can hear is from the lighthouse. And a little later on, we'll be hearing from another location on the coastline in Britain about what a Plymouth researcher is doing with panscarers. It's not just one panscarer, it is one, two, four, four panscarers, yeah, four panscarers all attached together, these plastic, you can hear them there, panscarers. Uh, ow, it hurts when you do that. <laughs> The Anglesey Coast is a good place to examine the relationship between biodiversity and the function of marine ecosystems. And the man to explain more about that is Dr Stuart Jenkins. He's from the School of Ocean Sciences at Bangor University. Stuart, we're on a a nice sort of bit of pebbly path here that leads us down towards the the shoreline i've got to be careful that we don't slip on on seaweed here this is quite a beautiful unspoilt areas but there are a few signs of life there in the distance we're just just at the mouth of the menai strait where it opens into the irish sea and there are enorm, enormous currents just here and we can just see a couple of boats there taking advantage of those strong currents they're bass fishermen hoping to um, get lucky but just in front of us we can see a rocky shore and you can see craggy rocks covered in barnacles and seaweed. And if you look closer from here you can see that there are lots and lots of rock pools. Those rock pools are really diverse areas which are really interesting to people like myself, marine ecologists interested in biodiversity. Well in that case I think that's exactly what we ought to do now. So if you would lead the way let's go and find a rock pool and take a look at the sorts of things that we can find in there. Lots of people will um, remember rock pooling, dipping in their nets and uh, finding a whole range of animals from little fish to uh, prawns and crabs and starfish. And we'll take a look first at the primary producers in these rock pools, the seaweeds. Here we are at a medium-sized rock pool. It's about half a square metre in size, about 30 centimetres deep. And first of all, what we can see is that it's literally full of marine life. Hold on, you say literally full of marine life. All I can see is seaweed. Yeah, seaweed and... Would this be called seaweed as well? This sort of more frond-like plant? Yes, don't discount the seaweed. We got about, probably about 30 species of seaweed in this rock pool. Good grief. We've got these large canopy-forming algae called Fucus serratus. Growing on the Fucus serratus is lots of brown, slimy ectocarpus. We've got the brightly coloured greens, so we have some uh, Ovalactuca, some Ovalinza. We have these beautiful red algae, which if you float carefully in your hand, you can see really pretty. This is a, a species of ceramium. It's funny you call that an, an algae, because to me, I would have discounted that as seaweed. So the algae is uh, like a, a plant of the sea. So for these, all these um, limpets and grazing snails and mollusks, for those guys, the seaweed forms the base of the food chain. Also, the seaweed acts like a, a mini forest. So if you imagine you're an amphipod or a prawn 
or a crab. You want somewhere to hide. So living in amongst that seaweed is a whole diversity of marine life which relies on that for shelter, somewhere to hang out and perhaps to act as an ambush predator. You're interested in particular in the diversity of life that's in a rock pool. Why did you choose a rock pool when you've got, even behind us, we've got an enormous amount of water and then going into the seas and going into the oceans? Man is having a huge impact on our oceans and our coastal waters. And that impact can have um, a negative effect on our biodiversity. When we lose biodiversity, that's bad in itself. But um, we can ask the question, if we lose species, what effect is that going to have on the functioning of our ecosystems? Now, as a marine ecologist, to try to answer that question, it's very hard working out in the open ocean. I like to do experiments, and I like to manipulate biodiversity. And a rock pool such as this provides an amazing mesocosm, a mini-world, an isolated body of water when the tide goes out, that I can manipulate the diversity and look at how that affects various response variables that I measure, things like productivity and the uptake of nutrients. When you change the diversity of rock pools for for seaweed species, what did you find? We found that in the pools with high functional diversity, what I mean by that is with seaweed species which were very different from each other, we got greater productivity. And what I mean by productivity is the seaweed grew faster. And if the seaweed grow faster, it provides lots more food for all those animals that live in the pool, the snails and the, um, the shrimps and the fish. So we get a much more diverse and healthy ecosystem. Did you do this with any sort of larger life forms? As well as looking at seaweeds, we've also looked at some of the animals that live in these pools. You can see here a number of different grazing mollusks. So we can see the typical limpets that we're all familiar with. We can see things like the common periwinkle, Litterina litteria. Hold on, which is a common periwinkle? That's this one, just, ah. just here. That's this the... one just looks like a, a snail shell, doesn't it? Well, indeed, it is a <laughs> snail shell. <laughs> well, you call it a periwinkle. You see, I automatically think of a flower there. Right, OK, so here's the common periwinkle, um, but also a whole range of other snails that look similar to that. We have, um, here we've got... The top shell, Gibula umbilicalis. We have another top shell, Ocellinus lineata. We have um, another one here, Litterina obtusata. So the, the list goes on. So the question is, all these snails, these grazing mollusks, look very similar. Does that diversity actually matter? So what we did in rock pools was, again, we, we performed an experiment and we manipulated the diversity of those grazing mollusks. Here we looked simply at the ability of the, the rock pool to go from a very bare area. We cleared the rock pools first, and then for all those seaweeds, those diverse seaweeds, to grow. So again, we were looking at production, but in a different way. And what did you find? What we found was that the actual number of species didn't matter. It was certain key species which had a much larger effect on the um, amount of food eaten than other species. In particular, the limpet that we can see just here. What that says in terms of our biodiversity research is that it's important to understand what species do. The number of species is important, but actually the functioning or what they do is very important. And that to me means that natural history is really, really important in understanding the ecology of this rock pool, or if we look out to sea, the ecology of the wider oceans or any, any uh, marine habitat. Dr Stuart Jenkins, thank you very much. You're listening to the Planet Earth podcast from the Welsh coast on the island of Anglesey overlooking the grey mountains of Snowdonia. 
The effects of climate change range from rising temperatures and higher sea levels to extreme weather and mass extinctions. And if that wasn't bad enough, there's a hidden process that's already underway in seas. The oceans are becoming more acidic. Richard Hollingham reports now from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory where scientists are investigating the effects of ocean acidification. Steve Widdicombe's laboratory is filled with tanks of water from rows of deep baths in the centre of the room to a series of ten tanks around the size of oil drums along the side. In those tanks we can actually change the chemical parameters of the seawater to mimic what the oceans might be like in 100, 150 years' time. And we do that by adding carbon dioxide. What we're trying to do is explore the effects of increased CO2 on marine ecosystems. And scientists reckon that only a small change in ocean pH could have a significant impact. A pH change of just 0.1 of a unit actually represents a change in the total acidity of 30%. So if you consider that normal pH of the oceans is around 8 or 8.1, a change down to 7.8 is actually a very large change in the acidity. The experiments here are designed to investigate what effect that rise in acidity is likely to have. Kate Delahaye, for instance, is studying the effects of ocean acidification on hermit crabs. The crabs she's working on all live in periwinkle shells, and as we watch, they scuttle across the tank towards their food. Not a lot has yet been done on the behaviour of animals and um, how the concentration of CO2 in seawater might affect their behaviour. So what I'm looking at is how CO2 might affect their ability to pick up chemical scents in the water, um, which is called chemoreception. So I'm interested to see how that might be affected over a longer term. So how important is that to the hermit crab, the, the scents in the water? It's very important because, as you can imagine, in the ocean, visibility levels are not always very good, depending on light and that sort of thing. So they need to have very keen chemical receptors to pick up scents in the water. So it means they can find food... They can locate predators and be able to hide from them, and they can find mates. So it's very important for them to be able to pick up these scents in the water. So how do you do an experiment like this? How do you see how their behaviour is is changing? Well, with these hermit crabs, I'm looking at how their ability to pick up the odours of food is affected. So what I'll do is I'll I keep them in certain treatments, but then periodically I'll take them out of the treatments and put them into an observational chamber and then I'll put in food cues and see whether they can pick them up in the water or not. And also they, they have two pairs of antennae and um, they have these shorter antennules which they flick through the water very rapidly and that helps them, it's like their sniffing response and it helps them to pick up odours in the water and it's quite easy to record that so that's also what I'm recording as well. We've come out of the laboratory to a little bay just east of the main city of Plymouth. But you can look out across the sound. There's Drake Island. The sea is remarkably calm. I guess the, the throbbing of, of boat engines in the distance. And with Nadia Christen, who's got pan scourers in her hand, why? I'm looking at the effects of ocean acidification on rocky shore communities. And what I do with these pan scours is basically these are community collectors. So 
we attached these here on the Rocky Shore in Alpatten in January, and they mimic kelp holdfast. So loads of different invertebrate species will start to colonize these panscowers. So that's how we can actually collect the Rocky Shore communities I will need for my experiment. So we've got this, uh, can I pick this, this up? It, it's not just one panscower, it is one, two, four, four panscowers. Yeah, four panscowers all attached together, these plastic you can hear them there, pan scourers. Uh, ow, it hurts when you do that. Um, multicolored pan scourers. So you put these on the rocks, they will mimic the, the base of, of the kelp, and you will collect effectively a, a community of organisms. Yes, because as you said, they mimic a kelp holdfast. So we collect them, put them into bags, and bring them back to the laboratory where then I can start my experiment. What is the, the ultimate purpose? The thing is, there are lots of studies with ocean acidification has been done just looking at one species and the responses vary quite a lot between different species. So it's really difficult to predict how communities or even an ecosystem will respond to ocean acidification. And that's why in my study I'm looking at the whole community itself so I want to look how the community as a whole responds to ocean acidification. Studying ocean acidification is a long-term international project, and back in his laboratory, I asked Steve Widdicombe whether he'd been surprised by what they'd found so far. Often we are not getting the results we expect, and that the more we look into the issue of the effects of high levels of CO2 on marine organisms, the more we are astounded by the complexity of the responses that occur and the trade-offs that occur between different responses. For example, we've had an instance where a marine organism has seemed to be unaffected by the exposure to high CO2. But as we look more closely, we've seen the fact that some of its muscles have wasted away because it's been using energy to respond to that. So whilst on the surface things look fine, underneath that's not always the case. And how important is it to get this sort of information? Well, the information we're providing here we think is essential Because, yes, ocean acidification is happening, and part of the effects we're seeing here will will enable people to see the consequences of producing more CO2. But also, it it allows managers the opportunity to see how the oceans might be in 50 to 100 years' time. And whilst they may not be in a position to stop it, they are in a position to develop management strategies and mitigation strategies to be able to live with this change. Steve Widdicombe from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory ending Richard Hollingham's report. Stuart, ocean acidification, obviously a a, a huge concern globally. When it comes to your research, when you're dealing with this small mini worlds and these rock pools here, do you not take into account ocean acidification on the sort of diversity and the function of the diversity of species that you're looking at? For me, it's, it's one of a whole range of impacts of humans that humans are having in our coastal systems and our oceans. So I could cite ocean acidification or um, extraction of fish or um, pollution or eutrophication. Any of these things will have negative, generally negative impacts on biodiversity. So I take my rock pools as a model system where I can look at, in an experimental way, how changes in biodiversity, how loss of biodiversity affects the functioning of the rock pool and hopefully by extrapolation the functioning of coastal systems. Stuart Jenkins from the School of Ocean Science at Bangor University. Thanks. Whoops, almost (laughs) fell there into one of your rock pools. Thank you very much.
From a rock pool on the coast in North Wales, I'm Sue Nelson and this has been the Planet Earth podcast. You can find Planet Earth online on the website, also on Twitter and Facebook, as well as YouTube where you'll find a video shot here on the shore between Puffin Island and the Anglesey coast. Thanks for listening.